And so I was telling Peter Jackson my tale of, that I've just told you. And he, he would come in and he'd show me stuff on his iPad. He'd come and sit around and we'd look. And he'd say, look at this. And we're laughing. And, and I told him that story that, you know, if I went to the toilet or to get a cup of tea, one of them would be on the kit. You know, John Paul or George would be banging those drums. Every, every guitarist wants to be a drummer. In fact, every band member wants to be the drummer. And uh, so he shows me in the clip you've probably seen that, you know, we're playing a song and, and suddenly we cut to George, we cut to John, we cut to Paul. And they all had different styles. You know, it was so great. But I was set up in my little corner, the drum session corner I went to and, I could live out there, cigarette, have a drink, and play for you. The Beatles words are very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Yeah. Nine, eight, seven, this is roll 29. 29. Three, two, one. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that we're like, we're striking. That's what it is, it's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've gone up with so many songs, but I've got, like, my quantum of tunes for the next ten years or album. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> <laughs> the winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 17 As ever, I'll start with a podcast recommendation. I guess that's why they call it the Elton John Podcast Podcast. Unlike the Beatles, the work of the former Reg Dwight is quite poorly served by the podcasting world. How fortunate then that there is this brilliantly researched, carefully produced and lovingly curated show available. Even if you're not a fan, it's a very informative, entertaining listen. So if you'd like to take a break from the norm, check it out. We're nearly at the end of January the 3rd. Honestly. But even after today's episode, there will be another 35 minutes of rehearsal of All Things Must Pass before they move on to other things. There is still plenty to talk about, so stick with it. The conversations are the main focus of this series. Once we've completed season two, you'll have two full days and 19 or 20 episodes of insights into the goings-on during the Get Back project, and I believe we've already uncovered a lot of new information. For those of you who don't want to follow the story from the beginning, here is a brief recap of episode 16. We rejoin the Beatles midway through a run-through of All Things Must Pass. This is a little discordant as the band are still trying to learn the song. George directs his attention at teaching John the chords to the song on the Lowry organ. John's keyboard knowledge seems sufficient to be able to transpose George's guitar chords quite well, but he complains that he's struggling to hear all the notes properly in the echoey space. 
As Paul starts to think of harmonies, George offers John the option of learning the song on guitar first. During this, Paul seems bored and makes some off-putting sounds over the PA system. George seems dissatisfied with his Les Paul guitar and contemplates switching to acoustic guitar. Paul asks Peter Sutton if this is possible. 1969 technology has no electronic means of amplifying an acoustic guitar other than putting a mic in front of it. George uses the term defade to describe a big amplifier, a term which John will use in a different context later on in the sessions. We learn from John that the Rolling Stones had trouble getting a live acoustic sound for their rock and roll circus show and in the end just recorded it for the cameras without amplifying it for the audience. As Peter sets up a microphone for George's guitar, we get two tiny snippets, not really performances, of other people's songs. John quotes a bit of the band's song, The Weight, inspired perhaps by George's insistence on a band-type sound for his song. This is followed by Paul singing I'm a Tiger, a recent hit by Lulu. We know the mic is now in position due to a lot of feedback. George complains about all the electrical boxes around his feet to Mal, and then with the acoustic guitar now audible, he leads the band through another run-through of All Things Must Pass, now adding the middle section which they try to follow. As they finish, George tries to adjust his mic and receives a painful electric shock. At first nobody takes this seriously. This appears re-edited in the Let It Be film. Peter says it can't be the mic, but George isn't plugged in anywhere else. Peter grabs both mics, but can't replicate the shock, so George hesitantly tries again, and once again recoils in pain. There is a lot of joking around, and just before the tape cuts, we hear Peter also receive a shock. I go into detail about what is causing this in the episode. We get a timestamp of 3.55pm, and as Paul sings about schedules to the tune of the Everly Brothers song, Problems, George is heard plugging in his electric guitar again. It's safe to presume he didn't want to get shocked again. However, he is still unhappy with Lucy the Les Paul, and asks Mal what other guitars are here. We learn that only his Epiphone Casino is at the studio, but in the end George opts to use John's guitar because it has heavier gauge strings fitted. Mal offers to go to George's house to pick up another guitar, but George doesn't think there is enough time. George plugs in John's guitar and comments to John about how much better it is now that they've removed the lacquer from the body. John says he got his sanded, confirming that someone else did it for him. Some footage exists of this sequence with George stood in front of John, still teaching him the chords to the song. John sits at the organ and Yoko sits behind him, occasionally going over and showing him some affection. Paul again is disengaged, fiddling with his amp and creating noisy distortion. George, John and Ringo begin another run-through, but Paul is distracted by Mal and Glynn. Glynn informs Paul that he can't secure an 8-track tape recorder so far. Paul asks him where they can get one. Glynn suggests a couple of places he knows of in America. There's a brief bit of humour as Glynn mid-expletive spits in Paul's eye. Paul laughs it off, but it must be embarrassing for Glynn. Paul tells them to call America and get the equipment here for next week. Glynn puts up some obstacles, being disparaging about the quality of American recording consoles. 
Mal offers to make some calls. Paul asks why they've not asked EMI. Glyn tells him they only have four-track equipment. This angers Paul, who knows full well that the Beatles have been recording on 8-track, and he knows EMI have used their machine for a remote recording of the Beach Boys live in London. Mal intervenes and steers Glyn away from getting more of a telling off from Paul. The Beatles now have a discussion about where they can source an 8-track machine. George says they can loan it to themselves, referring to the 8-track that the Beatles have bought, presumably for the Apple Studios that are still being built. But he shares Paul's belief that EMI should supply the right equipment. John agrees, Ringo is silent. George rants a little that the Beatles' success has enhanced EMI's income so much that they recently were able to buy the ABC cinema chain. In his opinion, the Beatles are subsidising EMI, so they need to be more supportive of the project. In the end, Paul delivers an ultimatum to Glyn and Mal, the best equipment by the end of the week, and George effectively tells them to not take no for an answer from EMI. And with Paul's words ringing in their ears, Glyn and Mal are sent away. Rehearsals continue for All Things Must Pass, and this is where we rejoin them. John now has his part down, barring a few minor fixes. Yeah, it's just the, the end, uh, which was... The shape you see on the fourth fret, fourth like that, or that, is E as well. So it's just really E. So it goes. Yeah, but it's the A is just a bit quicker because it's it's the B minor at that point. seems to have wandered off. See, the, the thing that I feel about the, like the motion of it is uh, very, you know, bandy. Yeah. Uh, Rick, this one, Rick who wrote all the, really, mm. the best ones. You know, his, his thing, it's like that. Uh, Here, George likens the song to something by the band's Rick Danko though John has already been reminded of The Wait, another band song. You know, it's like, a, it gets to some things a bit quicker, yeah, right? yeah. It's like, you know what I mean? It's just, you end it from And then if you get rid of the old spot on, then it'll... Yeah. 
it's not, uh, you know, and if there's people joining in, you know, I'd appreciate it too if you feel... George passively trying to get Paul and Ringo back involved in the rehearsal. Note that John is actually being very supportive of George. Paul, if anything, has been distracting. The only yeah, thing... Yeah, I've got... Yeah, forget about the this only thing, talking. like, the main bit is, like, uh, I thought if, if some voices went... This is Slate 50. This is Slate 50 now. Paul has returned. You know, away from that, and so I can join in on... Sometimes it's great if you're just doing it on your own because you can yeah. you can do that those things. Uh, but if you do them and everybody else isn't doing them, then you, they go unnoticed or it just clutters it. Yeah. <sighs> It's um, Timothy Leary, I suppose. Yeah. In his psychedelic prayers, he had one. I remember this from years ago. Uh, you know, that is that at sunrise and last all morning. That gave me the idea for the thing. George pointing out the inspiration for the song. Apart from life. shows John the switch on the swell pedal that produces Lowry Glide on his organ. We discussed that in episode 15. John is impressed and will play this a fair amount. Yeah, that's the, uh, this guy who Paul is looking a bit like from the band, who's the organist. He's really fantastic, but he's into that so much. You know, and it sounds a bit like a synthesizer because the notes bend. George, still talking about the band, makes a reference to Garth Hudson, who he says Paul is looking a bit like with his beard. Did you know they did that? That's why we must get a loudie. Uh, Paul was already aware of the effect. He says he had a demonstration in Cranes. This is one I'll have to ask for your help again. See if you can work out what Paul is referring to here. But they're much better than Hammond's, I think. You get one faster. Now it's Paul's turn to be taught the chords. George's approach is much more fragmented than Paul's, teaching the parts individually. Thank you. 
these things on the guitar. Yeah, I think but really, that one, probably the, the, that one isn't really F sharp, no, a flat no. minor like I thought it is. See, because I think if I do, so it's like the basic order. looking for a melodic and quite busy bass part, much like he would in George's Something. This is John on the drum kit. He can play a basic beat, but fills seem to be a bit sloppy. Rather than dictate a line to Paul, George allows Paul to develop his part organically, the opposite of what Paul does to him. says John. It is Russ who's catching it, isn't it? It is Russ who's catching it, isn't it? Offers George. wants to move on, but in fairness to Paul, he steers him back to rehearsing all things must pass. Mm -hmm. 
Mal seems to have written a key signature on the copies of George's lyrics. George finds that amusing. Yeah, there's a couple of things that you can get into if I, uh, you know, if you think, which is just I. Ringo is back on the drum kit. It's noticeably a different sound. Picture the scene. You're out with a few friends for a quiet post-lockdown drink when the subject of the Beatles comes up. You mention that you're a fan. Maybe you mention a certain podcast series you've been following. Inevitably, one of your more witty friends will offer this well-worn anecdote as a response. Somebody once asked John Lennon if Ringo was the best drummer in the world. He said, he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. Everyone will laugh and you'll fight the urge to correct your friend until at last you can resist it no more. Actually, you'll say, that was a joke by British comedian Jasper Carrot in 1983. And you'll feel smug that you've stood up for Ringo's reputation as well as spoiling everyone's fun. The problem is, you'd both be wrong. It's common knowledge amongst Beatles fans that this quote, often attributed to John Lennon, is in fact a bit of comedy from the 1980s, broadcast after John's death. Why it has come to be accepted as a joke made by Jasper Carrot is not really understood. We live in an age where it's possible to access any information or media clip. You'd have thought that the Beatles community, which is still finding unpublished photographs and recordings of the band nearly 60 years later, would have uncovered this clip. It's purported to be from the comic's 1983 topical TV series, Carrot's Lib. Surely someone would have found this and circulated it by now. The reason, of course, is that Jasper Carrot also never uttered these words. Pop culture journalist Tim Worthington made the discovery as to the true provenance of this quip while researching a BBC Radio 4 comedy show from the 1980s. He tweeted his discovery in 2018. Jasper Carrot is attributed with coining that Ringo wasn't even the best drummer in the Beatles gag in 1983. It's actually in Radioactive in 1981. Naturally, it fell to revered Beatles scholar Mark Lewison to source the actual gag clip. And here it is, voiced by comedian Philip Pope and written by Jeffrey Perkins, not John Lennon. <laughs> Just one thing you need for the LP, Ringo Starr. Ringo Starr? Oh, right, all right, maybe Ringo Starr wasn't the best drum in the world. Oh. <laughs> all right, maybe he wasn't the best drum in the Beatles, but he's a name. <laughs> Ringo Starr? Yeah, all right, all right, we don't have to have Ringo Starr. Oh, good, right. good. Yeah. We could have John Conti. John Conti. Of course, Ringo was the best drummer in the Beatles. He was also the best drummer for the Beatles. Listening to John here clumsily playing Phil's, or Paul earlier today drifting in tempo, it becomes much easier to appreciate what Ringo brings to the band. He's the anchor. He's the heartbeat. He's the pulse of this band. Anyone who's been a musician and tried to jam on a song like Get Back, for instance, will be able to tell you, without Ringo's distinctive feel, the whole song falls apart. 
Everything is played with a slight swing and all through rehearsals for all things must pass. Ringo has followed the vocal line so closely that even when George makes a timing error or plays a bar at an odd meter, he still lands the bass and snare drum beats in the right place. For an example of this lightning quick thinking, listen to John Lennon's solo song Remember from his 1970s Plastic Ono Band album. The song starts with a very simple drum beat in 2-4, but then John begins singing a beat too early and instantly Ringo reverses the pattern so that John is now correct. In truth, by the late 60s there were more technically proficient drummers out there in rock. Mitch Mitchell, who John had just played with, Ginger Baker from Cream, emerging talents like Ian Pace and John Bonham, funk drummers like Clyde Stubblefield, Al Jackson Jr. or Zigaboo Modelist. But technique isn't everything. Ringo had popularised so many things that are now taken for granted, from the matched grip with which he held his sticks, to the dampening and miking techniques he favoured on recordings, and even the placing of the drummer on a raised drum riser on the stage. He may not have been the best drummer in the world, but that view is entirely subjective. He was only the most influential drummer in the world. George demonstrating accents or pushes in the rhythm to Ringo. Uh, and you can come in. George asks John if the mics are still shocking. Paul says they shouldn't be. Someone in the crew is asking John which mic. I'm assuming he also got a shock. First full band performance, John hits the Lowry glide effect a few times, but it's not very musical. Ringo has the distinct ability to navigate his way around awkward time changes. Paul now adding harmonies. After each song it says, being that grey, I'd like the backing group to sing that. Yes. The Ray to sing all things as fast. The Ray was Ray Charles's backing singers. Originally a girl group called The Cookies, they were rechristened the Ray in 1958 to provide backing vocals for Ray Charles. 
They also recorded as a separate act on Charles's Tangerine records between 1966 and 1973. The lineup was a revolving door of talents. Between 1958 and Charles's death in 2004, 69 performers had spent some time as a raylette. Notable members included Margie Hendricks, who features prominently on the hits Hit the Road Jack and The Night Time is the Right Time. Mary Clayton, who's about to duet with Mick Jagger on the Rolling Stones song Gimme Shelter, and Minnie Ripperton later to have a hit with the Stevie Wonder produced Loving You. What George seems to have in mind when he mentions the Raylets is for John and Paul to sing the chorus of All Things Must Pass on their own as a backing group with George coming in for the payoff at the end. As we will soon discover, George waxes lyrical about Ray Charles's live show and his organist, Billy Preston. He, of course, will become a major part of this story later on. Lingering. Okay. Go do that bit then. Uh, I can just sing that line and just sing, but it's not always been that grave and voices. All things was Paul through yawns notes that this idea is quite ray. John, who sing that then? Paul suggesting a line to John that's identical to George's. suggesting they sing the line casually. I'm just flat out. <laughs> Paul seems to have run out of energy. George references one of the guitar parts from back in the USSR if you ever wondered who played that part. Okay then, what we do now is, uh, we go, do, let's do that bit and get that then. <laughs> so you trying to pull well, you know, just get the idea that maybe you'd be needed to... Well, if John sings what you're singing, yeah, and I sing harmony, just, uh, that that'll one. be the Raylettes. George references the long-sustained harmonies on John's Dear Prudence as inspiration for what he wants. Within that, where they just all sing bits. 
dance and join in and that. But within that, it gets like it's discipline where, you know, nobody's crowding anybody else. Yeah. But it's really great. Uh, George still waxing lyrical about the camaraderie of the band. It's really how he'd like the Beatles to be. Right. Let's do it one more time. Yeah, All things must think pass. Of anywhere, uh, you know, 4.45, 4.45. It's now 4.45pm. Another run through with the aim to add harmonies, though Paul's timing his way out. This initial idea is for a two-part harmony singing the hook and George joining in with the third part in the All Things Must Pass Away part. We now have a much misunderstood quote from George. You're so full of shit, man. This is Slate 52 on at the moment. For this segment, I give full acknowledgement to and complete endorsement of the YouTube channel Pop Goes the 60s. 
The comments made by George heard on this day's recording have been quoted out of context and misrepresented for a great number of years. The source appears to be an article in Rolling Stone magazine when the Nagra recordings first began to appear on bootlegs. One moment they're joking between takes, the next they snipe at each other with barely veiled contempt. You're full of shit man, Harrison actually says to McCartney in the film, oblivious to the camera. Aside from the fact that this comment is definitely not in the Let It Be film, we now know that the words are not said with any kind of malice towards Paul or anyone else. George is simply telling Paul about a play he's seen known as The Beard and written by beat poet Michael McClure. The Beard is a single act play with only two characters, Gene Harlow and Billy the Kid and is deliberately provocative and subversive in its depiction of the kid's attempt to seduce the Hollywood star. First performed in 1965, it was quickly shut down by the San Francisco police. When it moved to LA, the cast were arrested on each of the five days it was performed, charged with lewd and dissolute conduct. The American Civil Liberties Union took on the case, and this led to the beard becoming a core celeb amongst the elites. It is not unreasonable to assume that the 1968 production directed by Rip Torn at the Royal Court Theatre, which began on November the 4th, was the one that George saw. The Royal Court had a reputation for pushing back boundaries of acceptability, and that year theatre censorship laws were revoked. The lines George is quoting come from this section of the play. Before you can pry any secrets from me, you must first find the real me. Which one will you pursue? What makes you think I want to pry secrets from you? Because I'm so beautiful. So what? You want to be as beautiful as I am. Oh, yeah? So really, George is telling Paul all about a really naughty, subversive play. Nothing more or less. George and the playwright McClure's past would cross again over the years. McClure was close friends with Bob Dylan and along with George, a devotee of Baba Ram Dass, whose human being in 1967 McClure had participated in. So taken was George with this play that he commissioned McClure to record a spoken word disc on Apple's experimental offshoot, Zapple. Sadly, the label was scrapped when Alan Klein took over as business manager, so those recordings were never made. One piece of Michael's writing has made its way into public consciousness and pop culture. Janis Joplin is singing McClure's lyrics in the a cappella performance of Mercedes-Benz, which was recorded shortly before her death in 1970. from Ringo, Paul playing only one note, either on purpose or he is adjusting his amp with his spare hand. Hello? Oh. John testing, his mic is working, distracts George. Tape cuts. Slate 51, take one. Some progress has been made on the harmonies. That should be good if, like the beginning, it didn't come in till the singing. It started. After the 
repeat or do you just go out after that after the set? George directing John when to come in. John says not to play at the end is very easy. tighter though Paul's bass line is quite experimental. Harmonies are now three parts. John suggesting a call and response vocal in the second verse. The main issues are to do with the timing of the transitions into the different sections. Tape cuts. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.